Hi, this is Day for Night with Caridad Switch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the Edgelands and the wilderness. In today's episode, I'm going to read from something in process, new, so just a little section. Um, of something that may become a thing. <laughs> it's untitled at the moment. I've been playing with different titles in my mind, but uh, as of yet, none of them is quite right. So I'll leave it untitled for a while. Um, not much to say. It's a set in a house. Uh, I don't usually write uh, plays that are set in interior spaces. But, uh, but I, I don't think I have for a very long time. But um, I felt in the mood to do that and chest out, flex, as they were, some different muscles as a writer. So uh, this is a section, I guess technically uh, it's new, so who knows where it will eventually end up. But it's a section uh, fairly early in the play uh, for now. And uh, it's fairly self-explanatory, so I'm not going to uh, go into too much detail about who's speaking and so forth. A catastrophe in one area of the world is linked to another. People profit from disaster. They have done so for a long time. They build up their empires of nothing and fuel more disasters so that their profit margins go up. One day it's a war, the next day it's the banks, the next day it's the air we breathe, the sea, the sometimes sea. Yes, uh, pretty soon we're all staring at the disasters as if they were a reality show, a horrible spectacle. And we say to ourselves, more please. Not you, Nan, but everyone else. Even you, Seely, are saying, more please. Because disaster leads to fear, leads to shock, leads to people sitting in a house in disrepair, pretending they're protected from most things. When disaster is always at the door, knock, knock, knocking, like that song about heaven. And we've become so accustomed to disaster, we let it in give it a place to sit, and allow ourselves to think that if we sit with it long and hard, it will go away. Poof, like magic. Oh, how shocked we are when it's still here, breathing down our necks, slinking into our veins, poisoning our blood while we express our dismay. And it's not until way past the midnight hour, when we're barely stuttering ourselves to sleep, that we realize we're also part of the spectacle. We're caught up in it. We're as guilty as all those that we point our fingers at. And there's nothing we can do except maybe run away. So where are we going to run away to? Because the spectacle is everywhere. It's consumed the earth. It's eaten through everything. So some of us 
choose to stay inside, to live with the thought of running away and making a new world order, while others march in the streets and others go to the woods. Like you, Doc, you're near the woods, aren't you? In the woods, people make communion with each other. They plant trees. They seek forgiveness. They pretend they are as protected as those of us in our houses. When little do they know, they're as caught up in all of it as the rest of us are, enabling every single bit of the systems that make the show happen. I hope I'm wrong for the sake of the world, but something tells me... (laughs) It's a brilliant show. And yes, we are despicable people addicted to our little pleasures and little cravings and small, worthless desires for a bit of steak or some nice cheese or the promise of a magnificent job one day, one that will truly challenge us to be better than we are, better than what the reality show demands of us, even if what we really want to do is nothing. Just be. Take in the last bits of sunlight, the last shards of rain hitting the dirt, and call it a day to end all days. And that's from a new piece that I'm working on. We shall see what comes of it. I'm in the middle of it as we speak. Um, So to round out today's episode, uh, I'd like to read, I haven't done this in a while, read from a short story. Uh, I like short stories and I don't often indulge in them uh, on this uh, podcast. So, So I thought I'd dive in. There's a I'm going to look for a specific section of the story. So this is a a story by Tim O'Brien, uh, the famous writer, Tim O'Brien. Uh, there's that uh, the collection, the things they carried from 1990, going after Cacciato, I think is how you say that, from 1978. And his first published book was a memoir of his time in Vietnam called If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home from 1973. This is a a story called On the Rainy River. I'm just going to read from the probably the front end of it just for a bit. This is one story I've never told before, not to anyone, not to my parents, not to my brother or sister, not even to my wife. To go into it, I've always thought, would only cause embarrassment for all of us, a sudden need to be elsewhere, which is the natural response to a confession. Even now, I'll admit the story makes me squirm. For more than 20 years, I've had to live with it, feeling the shame, trying to push it away. And so, by this act of remembrance, by putting the facts down on paper, I'm hoping to relieve at least some of the 
pressure on my dreams. Still, it's a hard story to tell. All of us, I suppose, like to believe that in a moral emergency, we will behave like the heroes of our youth, bravely and forthrightly, without thought of personal loss or discredit. Certainly that was my conviction back in the summer of 1968. Tim O'Brien, a secret hero, the Lone Ranger. If the stakes ever became high enough, if the evil were evil enough, if the good were good enough, I would simply tap a secret reservoir of courage that had been accumulating inside me over the years. Courage, I seem to think, comes to us in finite quantities like an inheritance. And by being frugal and stashing it away and letting it earn interest, we steadily increase our moral capital in preparation for that day when the account must be drawn down. It was a comforting theory. It dispensed with all those bothersome little acts of daily courage. It offered hope and grace to the repetitive coward. It justified the past while amortizing the future. In June of 1968, a month after graduating from McAllister College, I was drafted to fight a war I hated. I was 21 years old, young, yes, and politically naive. But even so, the American war in Vietnam seemed to me wrong. Certain blood was being shed for uncertain reasons. I saw no unity of purpose, no consensus on matters of philosophy or history of law. The very facts were shrouded in uncertainty. Was it a civil war? A war of national liberation or simple aggression? Who started it and when and why? What really happened to the USS Maddox on that dark night in the Gulf of Tonkin? Was Ho Chi Minh a communist stooge or a nationalist savior? Or both or neither? What about the Geneva Accords? What about Cito and the Cold War? What about dominoes? America was divided on these and a thousand other issues, and the debate had spilled out across the floor of the United States Senate and into the streets. And smart men in pinstripes could not agree on even the most fundamental matters of public policy. The only certainty that summer was moral confusion. It was my view then, and still is, that you don't make war without knowing why. Knowledge, of course, is always imperfect, but it seemed to me that when a nation goes to war, it must have reasonable confidence in the justice and imperative of its cause. You can't fix your mistakes. Once people are dead, you can't make them undead. In any case, those were my convictions. And back in college, I had taken a modest stand against the war, nothing radical, no hothead stuff, just ringing a few doorbells for Jean McCarthy, composing a few tedious, uninspired editorials for the campus newspaper. Oddly, though, it was almost entirely an intellectual activity. 
I brought some energy to it, of course, but it was the energy that accompanies almost any abstract endeavor. I felt no personal danger. I felt no sense of an impending crisis in my life. I mean, stupidly, with a kind of smug removal that I can't begin to fathom, I assumed that the problems of killing and dying did not fall within my special province. The draft notice arrived on June 17, 1968. It was a humid afternoon, I remember, cloudy, very quiet. I'd just come in from a round of golf. My mother and father were having lunch out in the kitchen. I remember opening up the letter, scanning the first few lines, feeling the blood go thick behind my eyes. I remember a sound in my head. It, it wasn't thinking. It was just a silent howl. A million things all at once. I was too good for this war. Too smart, too compassionate, too everything. It couldn't happen. I was above it. I had the world dicked. Phi Beta Kappa and summa cum laude and president of the student body and full ride scholarship for grad studies at Harvard. A mistake, maybe. A foul up in the paperwork? I was no soldier. I hated Boy Scouts. I hated camping out. I hated dirt and tents and mosquitoes. The sight of blood made me queasy and I couldn't tolerate authority. I didn't know a rifle from a slingshot. I was a liberal, for Christ's sake. If they needed fresh bodies, why not draft some Back to the Stone Age Hawk? Or some dumb Jingo and his hard hat and bomb Hanoi button? Or one of LBJ's pretty daughters? Or Westmoreland's whole family, nephews and nieces and baby grandson? There should be a law, I thought. If you support a war, if you think it's worth the price, that's fine. But you have to put your own life on the line. You have to head to the front and hook up with an infantry unit and help spill the blood. And you have to bring along your wife or your kids or your lover. A law, I thought. I remember the rage in my stomach. Later it burned down to a smoldering self-pity. Then to numbness. At dinner that night, my father asked what my plans were. Nothing, I said. Wait. And that's from Tim O'Brien. Just the beginning of On the Rainy River. Uh, lovely. Uh, that's uh, today's episode. Heavens. Right, so, as always, this is about you and I in this theater. You there in the dark, and I here, wondering who you are. Thanks for listening. Today for night.